Welcome to SlayerFest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford. And I'm your other host, Matthew Rodriguez. And we are joined today by two very special guests. Joining us, once again, one of our favorite Scoobies, host of the podcast, The Devil's Party. Oh, it's Anthony Oliveira. Hello. Hi. Hi. And we have New Yorker television critic and queen of TV Twitter. Hello, Emily Nussbaum. Nice to see you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nice to see you too. Um, So yeah, Emily, this is your first time on the podcast, and we would love to ask you to share with us your origin story on Buffy. How did you first, what was the first episode you saw? How did you come to it? What do you love about it? The first episode I saw was The Pack. And it was oh. a full, it was a full conversion experience. I realized the pack, the um, the hyena episode, is not usually in anybody's top 100 Buffy episodes, but I love the pack. Um, yeah, I watched it. I, I think I had read a review of the show saying it was good, and I literally watched the episode, and it completely transformed my life, and is honestly the entire reason why I'm a television critic, um, because I I wanted an excuse to be able to argue about Buffy all the time so that worked out well but the pack is obviously the diametrical opposite of the body which is what we're going to discuss today and why I'm in a deep state of misery but do you want me to I I don't know whether I should tell you more about my experience with the pack it seems a little off topic but yes that's how I got into Buffy I immediately uh, became very obsessed with the show and seeking out other people and trying to talk them into watching it while Buffy was like first airing you had read a review of how it started and then you watched the pack on a Tuesday night or actually at that point on a Monday night when people yeah. Buffy. well actually actually it, it's you you have to really go back in time for this because of course at the time there were no DVRs there were no sure. there was no streaming there were no yeah. portable phones and one of the things was I had a friend who I watched a lot of TV with and during the commercials, I called him, um, and 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 after after the uh, the principal got eaten by the hyenas, I literally called him up and was like, "What the hell is this? This show is amazing." I mean, it was I actually had a very very gut reaction to that one episode, um, and then watched it obsessively from then and sort of caught up. A, a lot of people put down the first season as trivial, but I love the first season of the show. I think well, it's really powerful. So. It is, and I think one of the great things about the first season is that it relies purely on just metaphor as the engine to keep it running. Like, every episode is just a straight-up Monster of the Week metaphor, but it works so well. Like, they are just like, what's one terrible thing that can happen in high school? Let's turn it into a monster and go. Yeah, yeah, and it takes, and and the thing is, it, it, it has a reputation for being the lighter, fluffier season, but the metaphors themselves, while the jokes are fluffy, are taken very seriously. Like, the pack is, an, is a very disturbing episode in which there is incredible violence and an attempted rape by her mm-hmm. friend on her, and um, it's, it's actually very grim. So yeah. I think I was immediately struck by how exciting the mixture of tones was and how rare for TV and the whole thing of it looking sort of schlocky and silly, but having this incredible emotional weight. But I actually think that that moment that the hyenas kill um, the principal is, is this strange turning point for all of television. <laughs> so I will make, I will make my case based on the notion that that moment in the pack, I mean, it's a very weird thing because there's so much uh, extreme violence and shocking things on television at this point. But in 1997, I think, which is when that aired, right? Um, yeah. yeah. When, when that aired, that was a very, 
peculiar move to have a character actually stay dead after being killed by his own students <laughs> and specifically Eden. Um, so, uh, so I, I actually thought it was a, I, I thought it was making very daring moves right from mm. the beginning. It also announces something about the show, right? Like it, it, Principal Flutie is not necessarily a menacing figure, but um, it is a show where the person who has to die is the, the patriarch, right? Like the person we have to get rid of is this older blocking figure. Like Principal Flutie is like the archetype of the masters, an archetype of the mayor, right? Like, um, uh, I take issue with that. <laughs> principal Flutie was a very nice person. Like he wasn't like yeah. the later principal. He so was is... actually just a major character and a fairly benign figure. What's striking to me about it was that he stayed dead. Yeah. Right. Like, I always think the more striking thing about it that we're supposed to like just the show wants us to just be like, well, Xander was a hyena when he did it, so we have to forgive him because he's a major character. And we kind of have to go on with the knowledge that Xander may have eaten someone, but right. it's okay. <laughs> and did, it did Xander, did, Xander didn't eat the principal. No, Xander no. ate the pig. Yeah. Um, the bigger thing is that Xander attempted to rape Buffy, and he remembers it. I mean, I actually think that one of the things... I mean, I'd have to... <laughs> let's make this whole episode about the <laughs> I, have a, I clearly have a, a lot of thoughts and opinions. No, I mean, that that episode is an episode that a lot of people think of as a silly episode, but it's an episode in which not only does Xander eat a pig and attempt to rape Buffy um, and is only fended off by her super strength, but um, a major character dies and stays dead. So it establishes right there that it not only doesn't reboot like TV traditionally did, but there are moral repercussions for the characters that don't go away. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think just to, push back on the idea that I think there is some I mean the mayor was a benign figure too right that is also one of the things that it's like one of my favorite my favorite scene of Principal Flutie is his first one where he's sort of giving this like fluffy like oh we we take things we're going to be kind here where he's like um he's like hugsy and then he starts slowly reassembling the document that he has just ripped up because there is (laughs) he actually does want to keep Buffy's on file like right (laughs) um but I I also really have a great fondness for season one because I think it's the most purely gothic of the seasons in like the the traditional sense right like there's something even about its sort of jankiness of production like the blacks are never quite so black again on Buffy once they get better cameras and like I can see the corners of everything I literally can't track some like what is in frame in some of season <laughs> yeah. one's episodes and that adds to the horror dimension of it I think um but well, it also has it has that sort of Catholic stuff in it that Buffy quickly jettisons because the writers don't know what they're doing. It has like actual classic demons like Moloch in it. Like it's a different show and one I kind of would have liked to have seen as much as I love obviously the show that it became. Um, well, today we're here to discuss. Oh no, <laughs> the body. Um, oh god. <laughs> let me tell you all. Just like the tweet for the video of her saying "Mom, mommy" to get it right, recording it. I, like, cried my way through recording it five times. I was like, oh, this is terrible. Why did I want to do this? really found it extremely upsetting to watch this episode again twice. I haven't watched it since it first aired, I think. It's it's um, definitely an episode I skip when I rewatch Buffy. Not because it's not good, but just because it's, like, not enjoyable. Um, and I don't enjoy, like, I like a good cry. And as anyone who listens and Matthew knows, I cry a lot of things. But, who boy, the, like, crying for this is, like... I'm disgusting, I'm melting, I'm dying. Matthew, would you like to begin talking about the episode? <laughs> I would love to, because I did not cry watching it, as uh, no one who watches our podcast is surprised to hear. Monster, <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, so we, uh, you know, we start with Buffy walking into her house and she sees the flowers that uh, Joyce's suitor has sent her. And then obviously we get to Buffy seeing her mom on the couch and we have that, those three final words before the tag, which is mom, ellipses, mom, and then finally mommy. Ugh. Ugh. I, you know, I think, I mean, I tried to make all my notes not say for every other scene, blank deserved an Emmy because like Sarah Michelle Gellar totally deserved an Emmy for this, but the acting she's doing felt so real of like, she knows her mom is dead the moment she sees her, but she's hoping she's not right. And she's conveying that all just through saying the word mom and through her face. And just even that, like that bit of acting is so heartbreaking. Um, and so familiar for anyone who's dealt with like finding someone dead and like, it's unexpected, you know, at this point, I think I forget often that at this point from Buffy's view and Joyce's view, Joyce is fine. She's recovered. Mm -hmm. She's all healed up. She's, she's doing great. The last thing she did was go on a date, joke around with Buffy about like leaving her bra and like, I don't know, like that makes it so much more painful to watch her daughter reacting to this. And it's just very human. One of, the, one of the things I love about this episode, I feel, is that they play around a lot with Buffy's duties as, um, as sister, as daughter, as slayer. Um, and they really showcase all of her roles. And so to me, like the reversion from mom to mommy is this like, you know, she walks in, she's Buffy, the person, she's just a slayer. And then seeing that image of her mother not responding to her, she, she, you go back to mommy, right? Like you go back to like, I am, this is my mother. I am her daughter. Like you feel that relationship and, and you feel in that word, like how much, just how much emotion she feels for her mom. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's such a, it was such a, and to watch her face, go through the realization, yeah. watch Sarah Michelle Gellar's reactions and how she says the words. It's, uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a really emotionally moving scene. Rewatching the episode, I, I actually remember feeling how strange it was when I first watched it that um, the episode is, when she first comes in, is so, somewhat premised on the fact that we've seen a million corpses on this show before. Right. I mean, people mm -hmm. die all the time on the show, and the difference in this episode, which is not only the awkwardness and long pauses and not having music, having this incredible silence, is that not only the viewer, but the people in the show keep expecting there to be a supernatural element to this, and the fact that it is just a body and just a corpse, and it's not going to become a vampire and it's not been killed by a demon or a vampire and the way that comes up right from the beginning. Um, and just, even though it's not always mentioned sort of hovers through the episode as you keep waiting for the twist is really powerful part of it to me, just the way mm -hmm. that it's structured where they keep showing her body. They keep talking about the idea of her body and the idea of her corpse, just staying a corpse. I've said this a few times in the season, but I wanted to bring it up for this episode too, is that when I first watched it, you know, when, when this show was first on, so at this point we're in 2001 or 2001 when this was airing, I I didn't realize that it was as natural a death as it was supposed to be because my whole, the way I guess I had watched the season was that just the presence of Dawn had done something like messing with, with Joyce's memories had caused the tumor. So I always felt like it was supernatural and it wasn't until then when I watched the DVDs and you hear like Joss talking about how it's natural, it's natural, that I got that it was supposed to be a totally natural death. And even if it was caused by Don, it was like, I guess, in natural terms. That I, So I always felt like there was yeah. an element of 
because Dawn was inserted in, into her memories that her brain was therefore it, something had happened. I, I sort of admire season five as sort of the perfect structural season five and season two to me are how you structure network television. I think in both cases, there is like a macro clock running, but also um, each of the beats uh, works as part of a piece. And I think what makes to me what made Joyce's death so surprising was that I thought Joyce's illness, even as a kid, I thought Joyce's illness had served its purpose, which was, first of all, to create a means by which Joyce could perceive Dawn as intrusion, right? Because Joyce is not a supernatural character. Um, but if you if you put her in that state that so many Buffy characters live in, sort of like altered state of like Drusilla, et cetera, where they can perceive differences in reality, it lets Joyce get in on that. But it also um, sort of sidelined Joyce as a mother, right? It made her someone Buffy needed to take care of uh, rather than... Because if Joyce had been at full health, Buffy's relationship to Dawn would have just been the bratty sister, right? Um, introducing introducing Dawn and then giving Buffy a reason to sort of act as caretaker for her necessitated Joyce being sidelined. And I thought that work was done. And then when we see Joyce recover, um, my brain sort of like rested on the Joyce. My anxiety about Joyce went away. I felt like I could watch this fun robot episode. Mm -hmm. And then we get the gut punch of Joyce's death. Um, and I think that that, that to me speaks to how great the structure is of this season. Um, I did I did also have the thing, because I was a dumb teenager, I thought like, oh, I thought the thing Joss says in the commentary that when Dawn touches her at the end, maybe something will happen. But that's just the same wishful thinking that Buffy keeps manifesting throughout the episode, right? Yeah. Like, she'll be fine, she'll be fine, she'll be fine. I think <laughs> my own trauma of Joyce's death was, no, no, they'll find a way out of this, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, Which and... is also, now that I think about it, what the next episode does, right? Like, Dawn right. attempts to be the thing that I was hoping she would be. Right, yeah, and, you know, I, Joss, in the commentary, Joss does say that, like, he wanted to make sure to, like, beat us over the head with, like, quote-unquote, the almost boredom of the very few, few very first hours, um, and I think that they nail it perfectly. Um, he also says in the commentary that for this scene, he just had a guy with the, cam, uh, the camera on his shoulder following Sarah Michelle Gellar around the set, and that's why... You know, like, I think I often forget that Joss was also a director for this. Like, I was like, wow, he knows a lot about cameras. And I was like, oh, he's also a director. That's why he's not just the writer. Um, and how they had the guy with the steady with the camera just on his shoulder and didn't do a steady cam on purpose because they wanted it to feel frantic. They wanted the camera to shake. And you're from Buffy's perspective. Uh, and yeah, like hearing him say that, like listening to this commentary for this episode felt like I was, like, listening to, like, a masterclass in, like, filmmaking. I don't know. This is a, a silly note after you said something so serious, but <laughs> watching it on Hulu does take you out of it because they've changed the proportions of how it looks, and you can see cameras and boom mics. <laughs> oh, my God. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. Um, the shots are so tight, you know, on this episode yeah. that a lot of it's just face, like, or Buffy in frame. And I watched it on Hulu because my DVDs are at my mother's house. So I don't have them with me. Mm. So I watched it on Hulu. And, yeah, you can see a lot of boom mics because, um, you know, it's shot square and Hulu turns everything right. widescreen. So they actually, it's not, doesn't translate one-to-one. -one. Mm. And so you see a lot of boom mics. And this episode was, like, one of the worst offenders. <laughs> I was like, how terrible that this, like, emotional episode has to be, or this, like, pivotal episode has to be wrecked by, like, yeah. boom mics. And cameras. <laughs> it's funny because, yeah, in season four, 
the the time I first noticed it on Hulu was when Buffy and Faith are rolling down the steps. That whole fight uh-huh. scene, it was like you saw the cameras in like every other every time like Buffy was throwing a punch or something, you saw the camera. Um, and that was the first time I noticed it on Hulu. But yeah, I watched because I watched it with the commentary. I actually had it playing on Hulu on my computer and watched the episode with commentary after I had watched the episode already. I, I, I haven't listened to the commentary track, but I, I, you know, I read analyses of the episode online, and I was interested that he had added the entire scene of the Christmas flashback, yes. partially so that he could um, not have the credits run over this terrible, painful scene of Buffy discovering her mother's body. Is that right? Oh. That whole extended sequence, yeah. which is awkward in its own strange way, I have to say. I was watching it, and I had, I mean, I, I love the show, and I love the 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 episode but it has these odd moments in the dialogue that feel Mm -hmm. um kind of creepy or cheesy or like there's a sort of cutesy bantery quality yeah the the beginning of the conversation at the christmas dinner really doesn't click for me it almost doesn't sound like the people know one another or something um it has a very theatrical feel until they get to the great part with anya talking about um santa claus which is fantastic and hilarious and anya is to me the actual um hero of this episode like rewatching it twice i again felt like aside from her amazing monologue you know in a strange way it would almost be intolerable to watch if it wasn't for anya because (laughs) because anya's perspective on joyce's death is both refreshing and powerful but also includes a lot of comedy lines which are almost impossible to fit in to the context of this and that that starts with that strange disemboweling children section Mm -hmm. that Um, emily that's funny because in the commentary joss touches upon both those things he does say he made the scene just the exact length of the credits because he didn't want it rolling and he also says that he thinks he made a huge mistake by having that conversation happen and not having joyce be there like he said that after he saw the episode he wished he had written joyce cleaning the dishes as anya's telling that story that way she's like still there even with them having this like cute aside and then at the end, he also mentions how, like, Emma Caulfield always delivered, even in an episode where it was nearly impossible to deliver any kind of laughs, that she still delivered both, like, the crying and the laughs for the audience. Um, and I, I mean, I, we say this all the time, but I think most of the women on this show, like, are severely underrated and, like, deserved way bigger careers post-Buffy. Mm. I think that the, um, I mean, obviously that's true. I, I, I would watch Sarah, uh, Michelle Trachtenberg do anything, but... Um, <laughs> I I think the Christmas episode, uh, the Christmas sequence does some weird things for me. One of them is, um, I, like, when when could this have happened? This is one of these weird things where uh, Dawn is an, a recent insertion into their lives, which means that this might literally be a false memory, right? Or an altered memory. It's not, it, was this the one Christmas Dawn has actually celebrated? Or It would be because this was, um, they didn't have a Christmas episode in season five, but she was alive for this past Christmas. So this is the most recent Christmas then. Okay. Um, The other thing this scene does for me is it introduces, um, the the, the initial exchange is is Joyce saying it's time for pie and Xander says it's time for barf, right? And it's like, the Whedon talks a lot in the commentary track about uh, physicality being the issue. This is an episode where Buff, we are going to watch our heroine vomit, right? Um, the the sort of stakes of the body are already on the table in a weird way. Like Willow has had too much nog. Um, uh, we're we're thinking about <laughs> them being oversatiated. My uh, my boyfriend has me watching Sex in the City for the first time right now, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> <Lucky> but <you. laughs> <laughs> it is so 
it is so much better than I imagined when oh, I was so sort good. of. But the thing that I keep thinking about is like, wow, like I'm not used to watching actors eat on a show. They, those women have to eat a lot on Sex and the City. Buffy as a character does not eat very often. Um, one of the things this episode is doing uh, is thinking about realism as a style, like uh, in a show that is very arch, in a show that is very formal, it's observing really specific, minute details about uh, the body and about human beings. And one of them is like they eat. One of them is that Dawn is going to have to pee. One of them is that Xander's going to bleed. One of them is that Buffy's going to vomit. And like, as cheerful and sort of fakely cheerful as the scene is, it's already thinking about like the pressures your own body exerts on you in a weird way. Um. I, think that, I think that's true, but I also, I, especially rewatching it the second time, I, I was thinking about the fact that um, although Buffy's responses when she finds her mother are very realistic to anybody who's in shock from situations like that, and clearly some of it's autobiographical a bit to Joss's experience. Yeah. And that comes through in that scene. The episode is not a realistic episode. There are these abstract things about people's experiences of their bodies. And then there's this recurrent horror and fascination with the idea of Joyce's body. But it really feels like a stylized episode in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, not the show is never is never some sort of mumblecore experience with everybody (laughs) just lounging around riffing or anything like that. But like the, the, the scenes are so explicitly designed to highlight certain kinds of ideas and experiences. So you have, you know, Willow dealing with her clothing and then a discussion about Tara's family, you know, and how her responses and like it, it, I mean, it feels, it feels very structured. Um, oh yes, I wouldn't suggest. I, I don't mean when I say realism, I mean it in almost like a for uh, like almost like in a Jane Austen kind of way, like realism in the sense of like minutely observed, um, but like exquisitely observed, but very still very formalized. Yeah, abstract is a good way to think about it. Like think about watching chalk move. Watching chalk move on a a panel is not something that Buffy usually bothers to do, and this episode just wants to think about. I mean yeah. that speed, like even that scene, sort of like. The arch means what you mean with Don with yeah the, yeah with Don drawing yeah it's true there are shots in the episode also that verge on if the episode weren't so well done would be a little pretentious for mm-hmm. this particular show because yeah. it wants to make you notice things and look at things and be in this slightly zombified zoned out shocked state um, and use things symbolically like the shot of Don's hand drifting down and then the shot of her picture symbolizing Joyce's body in a way that's actually pretty unusual for the show. Like, I love that about this episode that it, that it wants to be serious. It is serious and it risks being over serious and actually pulls it off because it's Mm -hmm. not sentimental. It allows awkwardness to linger. I mean, it's why people don't rewatch it is that it doesn't offer you some of the satisfying ease of almost every other serious episode about this kind of subject matter. Yeah, you have so much to before we move on. The one thing that I always think about with the Christmas credit scene is that I think obviously we're all, we want to talk about it a lot, and then there's this idea that it's like almost like the cheese man. Like it may not it may not mean anything. Like he had to write it to put it into the credits, which I think is also very interesting. He was like, well, I just I just wrote it, and but there's so much there to talk about too, and I, I always of that kind of dissonance in a way. I have to write a scene that that will just be a placeholder, but it's going to be this really I mean, this really packed scene because, in a way, the scene is about what role does Joyce play because it's a it's a fake it's a fake scene where we are not sure about it and like 
we haven't seen Buffy spend Christmas night with her friends before. We're not sure. I mean, we know Willow's Jewish and we know that Xander doesn't have the best home life. So her family has become the de facto family, I guess, for her alternate family, let's say. And it makes sense. And then they're all there. And then, you know, Joyce knows to ignore Xander's comment about vomiting. And then it's also the last time we get this repeat where Buffy talks about Joyce having sex with Giles. Yeah. One last yeah. Time. It's this very, like, you know, right before we go back to Joyce lying there. And of course we have Buffy pulling Joyce's skirt down before the paramedics get there, like thinking about Joyce uh, enjoying sex with Giles. Like one last time is such an right, interesting right. final note before the pie falls. And then we get the paramedics coming. She cracks her rib and she's talking to the paramedic and the, um, you know, the, she tells the, I mean, she tells the person on the line uh, that she's cold and the person says the body is cold. And she says, no, my mom. Yeah, and in the commentary, um, Joss says how her calling 911, the reason they stop and, like, focus on the phone is supposed to be that's her completely accepting, oh, my mother is dead. Um, and what's weird is, like, this. okay, so this I put this under grim in my notes. Um, so when I, like, found my friend, when I found one of my roommates uh, dead in his bed, we, uh, we had to call 911. And I remember reading people thought it was unrealistic that the paramedics would leave the body. But that's actually exactly what happened to me. The paramedics were like, oh, he's dead. We have to, it was Brooklyn. You know, they were like, oh, we're having a rough day. They were so late getting there. They left us with the body. Um, and we just like waited around with the body for seven hours. Eventually the police got there and we just like waited. Um, God, I'm so sorry. It was, uh, I'm just bringing it up because like, for me that like, that's realistic. You know what I mean? Like a place where they're doing a lot, which is clearly Sunnydale, there would be a lot, clearly these EMTs would be, nonstop right in a town like Sunnydale um and I don't know I remember I remember reading and even thinking when I was younger like oh that is weird that there's no way they leave someone with a body um but that does happen they had they made a police officer sit with us the whole time but yeah that's like a thing they do um and I just felt like all of this Buffy's boredom and on top of her like not knowing what to do just like sitting there is all real and like thinking like oh I have to pull down her skirt I don't like what a what a weird thing to think, but like those like I remember thinking, oh, let me hide my weed in case, even though like they probably weren't gonna search for weed, but like that was like a stupid thought I had, you know, and like because you need to fill your brain with something, right? Mm. Other than just being like this person's dead, let me stare at their body. Watching this, like, God, like especially after that, like that night I I went home to my parents' house and like watched this episode because that was the only for me the only like consoling thing. And yeah, and I remember just like watching it and it was like, I finally cried. Um, and this all feels like this opening scene of her just frantically running around the house, not knowing what to do, sweating, vomiting. It all felt real. And I felt like, not to be too grim, but I related it a lot to like that, even though it wasn't apparent, you know, it it felt very real to me. I do think, mm. Emily, I think you're both right though, Emily, like it feels it feels real, but it's still high concept. Like it feels like it could almost be the cinematography on like a David Lynch movie or something, the way they do the like extreme close-ups and like when the EMT is talking to her and we don't even see his face. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted yeah. to add By that the way, in there. When, I, when I was talking about the, the stylized stuff, I more meant the whole episode. I actually think this, this is the one scene in it that does feel like lived experience. I mean, it's definitely stylized the way that it's um, the way that it's filmed. Like you really notice the framing in a way that you don't on Buffy a lot, but the emotional aspect of it, I, you know, first of all, I'm sorry that happened. That sounds 
extremely horrible and yeah. seven hours is a long time um but but the uh, but the other thing is that the emotions in the scene are are so i mean anybody who's had various different kinds of bad experiences can relate to this to the way in which it shows her even you know she gives such a great performance the zoned out voice that she has yeah. when she talks when she talks to giles on the phone and she says she's here and then yeah. he thinks she's talking about glory like it really gave me chills and was incredibly moving and it's because she captures that numb but functional state that people when they're experiencing trauma have yeah. happened when I, when I when I saw this I actually the same friend that I called during the pack is the one I was watching this episode with. I can't remember whether he came back after it was over or not, but his mom had died not that long before, and we mm. were afraid to have him see it. Yeah. Um, mm. And then after the episode, we all went into the kitchen and had shots. <laughs> <laughs> we so and then I think Felicity was on after at that time, so we were like, oh, we have to right. watch Felicity immediately. <laughs> it was just so upsetting. But anyway. You're like, please give me something that'll give me a little relief from this. Yeah. <laughs> Ian, I also want to express my condolences oh. and horror at that. No, um, it's happening I, I, to you, I didn't say that for, I don't want you guys, I didn't say that. I just f- said that to like relate it to the episode. Wrote a whole thing yeah. about it. That's fine. But, yeah. Well, one of the things. <laughs> but I appreciate Whedon, you both saying that. Uh, one of the things Whedon says on the commentary track is that one of the things he wanted to capture, um, Tara has a speech about it that like, you may have thoughts that make you think you're horrible. Um, you may think things that make you think you're losing it. And it's like the, one of the things that makes the episode like scare quotes or maybe capital R realistic is that it has things in it that aren't coalescing into some sort of thematic or like grand pronouncement about the stakes of death. Right. Like um, it, it, it lets itself sort of just have weird unfitting pieces in it, like dialogue that doesn't fit, like um, Buffy's weird change into the the third person about herself. Like, that to me is um, what makes it so well observed as a piece, um, but also like its refusal to make sense of the events that as they are happening, right? Like everybody keeps wondering in a weirdly um, almost Cartesian way, like the last question of it is where did she go? Like she's yes. just a body, she's just a body. And yeah. it's like, that is a strange thing for someone who so insistently, Whedon says he's like an 80 versus Tim Minear, he doesn't believe in the sky bully, right? Um, one of the things, one of the weird things about that Santa conversation is like the myths we tell each other about like how yeah. wonderful life is. And this episode refuses to tell a myth, right? There is no, at least not here, there is no sense of what has become of Joyce as like entity, right? She's just a body now and whatever was animating her is gone, but we have no way to coordinate what that means. I was thinking this the whole time I was watching it. I was like, wow, this is the most atheist presentation in a way that I really personally appreciated of, of, <laughs> of, of death um, because it, it is all about coming to terms with the fact that, um, that the, the, the body itself is this empty, horrifying, fascinating object. And, you know, the, obviously there's this thing about the negative space around the body mm-hmm. and the notion of focusing on the body, but not a single person brings up religion or heaven or anything like that. Not that her friends yeah. would, but it doesn't even come up, you know, like for instance, it doesn't come up with Tara, who is from a religious, horrifying religious family. Like, <laughs> right. like, like it, it's, it's not in the picture. And so when they say, where did she go? It, it, 
it's it's an existential question. Yeah. But it's also very weird in the context of Buffy because, of course, Buffy is a supernatural show in which people come back from the dead all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Including and, in this episode. You know, they, 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 yeah, I mean, they come back from the dead. They take different forms. And Buffy herself, after the season, goes to something that might be heaven. So the, the fact that in the episode, none of those possibilities comes up. Like, nobody says, um, you know, people suggest that maybe Glory killed her, that there was something supernatural involved. But nobody suggests that... She She's going to become a vampire. That there's some that that supernaturally they could bring her back. Like the, it's just it's this gulf within the bigger story of Buffy and the supernatural universe of Buffy, in which people really do cope with it as uh, not just a natural death from like that that she wasn't killed, but also as a you know outside the supernatural possibilities of someone being revived. Yeah. So I wanted to move on to Dawn scene. I really like this scene. It almost falls under the criticism that. Y'all were saying earlier about the Christmas scene, but I, I don't know. For me, it works because I like, we see Dawn crying. We find out it's about someone calling her, what does she say, uh, freaky? And then it's like her and her friend. And I wanted to read the quote from Michelle Trachtenberg from this book, The Slayers of Vampires, because I thought it was really good. The quote is, When I read the episode, it was like I was losing a part of myself, to be honest. I think it really allowed the audience to connect with Dawn for the first time. I wasn't stealing things or whining. Um, and I thought that was a really good quote, right? <laughs> and I kind of agree with that quote. Like, you can anyone can relate to any like silly teenage problem because we we all had them when we were a teenager. Um, and you know, and then Joss says in the commentary that he purposely used his quote unquote signature of having Buffy come to Dawn when Dawn's at her happiest that day because she's connecting with this cute boy. They're like being cute and flirty and talking, and then. Buffy's like a Dementor gliding into her classroom to tell her this terrible news. I love this scene because there's, um, there's a, this is an episode where I love Dawn and I think it's because we actually are allowed to see the world through Dawn's eyes for the first time as much as we've talked about on the podcast, how much once Dawn comes on the show that it is the Dawn show. One thing that we, that this episode makes me realize is how much it is the Dawn show still through Buffy's eyes. We're still watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer and experiencing Dawn as Buffy's sister. And then when we get to the scene where Dawn is the protagonist, she's, I mean, we really haven't seen Dawn in school, you know, and we won't see it that much until season seven. So here we are, an episode that is all about the body and, and, death and then we have this really intensely social moment of dawn so dawn is upset her at us at school is being affected by being called a freak and she's actually talking about like public humiliation in a way and then she gets we get to the scene where during class you know she's drawing and she gets to flirt with cute guy and she talks very i thought very cavalierly about her cutting herself and just like (laughs) openly talking about self-mutilation with a friend of hers who says that he has the same thoughts and there might be some kind of connection. And then it actually turns around by the end of the scene for me. Like she talks about the, the beginning of the Dawn thing. One bookend is public humiliation. And then by the end of it, it's actually turned into like everyone is watching Dawn and everyone feels sympathy for her. And I couldn't help but feel like there was this, there was this sense that whatever Dawn had gone through socially was kind of changed by actually public empathy and sympathy for her also as if like the social experience at school would change because of 
what she was going through publicly and everyone was you mean in terms of her breaking down about her mom that they would sympathize with her you see that's interesting first of all i I love this scene like i I think this scene is great and it actually does not feel i not 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 like i hate the christmas scene but the awkwardness that i was talking about in that i don't think is present in this at all and i agree with you that it really brings a whole different side of dawn but i actually thought what happens to her at the end as traumatic and humiliating like not that people didn't feel sympathy for her they did but buffy wanted her to go outside for that conversation and she loses control total physical control like weeping and screaming and falling to her knees in front of guy she has a crush on her arch enemy her friend her teacher who weirdly resembled joyce to me yeah and also to me that the contrast that they build between the conversation that she was having where she's like yeah i cut myself yeah i felt those dark feelings too this sort of teenage angsty performance of deep thought and <laughs> like bonding over like <laughs> i have a very dark side people at the school don't understand my dark side and then something genuinely dark happening i think it's really well constructed but yeah that's interesting i, I didn't see this as leading to people having sympathy for her i felt like it would lead to you know oh, no. it, it, it would be so much- my so-called <laughs> life it would it would lead to her being like oh that's the girl with the dead mom like yeah. you know yeah, um, yeah. W- there's a moment when she's breaking down when the three girls who are tormenting her look at her and they are not looking at her in a way to me that conveyed like we're gonna talk shit on her yeah no and- you may be right who would be a total jerk about that it's not yeah, like yeah. she it's, beat herself you would not i don't think anyone would go back you might remember the drawing and the negative space around the body but I don't know if you would go back and remember how much it's obsessed with Dawn's school status, too, and how important that is to her. And actually, I love that you brought up Buffy's thing, because it is such a, like, battle of wills, right? Like, her, one of the whole things this season is Dawn always feeling like Buffy is keeping secrets from her about different mm-hmm. things. And every time, and so Buffy's trying to tell her something, and she's like, please, let's go outside. And you can see how much she's trying to protect Dawn, but Dawn's still being like, no, because I want this information, you never tell me anything, and how much she doesn't understand that Buffy's trying to, uh, once again, assume the role, kind of, of protector for her. By the way, um, I appreciate in this scene that there's that moment that her friends hold, holds up a sign saying he wants you. It's like, <laughs> it's like uh, uh, this is an episode, I was so sad as I was, you know, of course, I kept alternately bursting into tears, feeling <laughs> nauseous, feeling slightly weirdly annoyed at some of Buffy's friends and their behavior in this way that was a little alienating, and I was counting the jokes, and I was like, why did I agree to appear on a podcast? Just <laughs> something in which there are almost no jokes so the jokes are so precious in this episode and so in that scene when she holds up that sign i was like oh what a relief (laughs) i I tricked you emily i tricked you coming on in this episode well it's my own fault i should have chosen something blue or something anyway um, i was also into that moment because um she does it so brazenly like they're in the middle of It's like, <laughs> Everyone can see it. It's not like she holds it up on a phone. It's like a big sign. I'm really obsessed with that friend. I don't know. I don't even know. Yeah, if we who get is it. that? I try. I was going to look up the actress. Like, I think she has um, the best entrance ever, which is flushing a toilet and emerging <laughs> from a stall. Uh, I just like. I'm just thinking about Emily, which just said about losing control as being the key here, and I think that. I'm sort of obsessed with leaky bodies as a thing. And one of the things I, I love the is like... The original title for Buffy. <laughs> yes. Um, I keep thinking about Zizek thinking about Psycho, that like one of the things that is unnerving about the film Psycho is it's the first film that ever showed a toilet. Um, uh-huh. And that, that match on action of her eye as corpse matching with the sink 
as like the space into which bodies disappear, the sort of the leftover, the, I guess in this case, it's the, the negative space and like opening in a bathroom. This is Don is going to have to pee later. Like the body is registering, not just Joyce's body, but our own bodies. Like they bring all that food to Buffy later. Um, and having a character enter by flushing a toilet is like my favorite thing I've ever seen in a scene. Um, I think we see that friend in two more episodes or one. I know she's like, literally has like two lines in I think bargaining part one or part two when she gets replaced by Amber Tamblyn (laughs) yeah as Don's best friend weirdly I do wish Buffy had just been like okay Don fine we're not going outside but like let's turn this corner like let's get away from this windowed room but I know it's like Buffy's you're right it's the wit battle of wits right it's Buffy's like absolutely drained and it's just like I need to tell you mom's dead but also like not wanting to argue and fight with her By the way, I love the filming of the scene, and especially I love that thing where they move inside the room so that you're seeing it the way that everybody else is seeing it through this window, and the the, the audio is distanced from you in this way. But I will say this is also one of those scenes in which um, it really is so stylized because – everything is stock still and the people in the room are literally moving toward her in a way that I guess they might in real life, but it just, it it really did feel like it was um, like, it was a diorama of the moment. She is standing there and then you get this really stark thing of the teacher staring, her friend walking toward it, the boy looking at her in pity. They, they really hold it for a long time. And then, yeah, they go inside the room and what do they show that first they show, something else and then they show the like the statue picture. i think it's like a statue of a naked woman and then they show the drawing of the the statue of the naked woman and they show the teacher's face there's yeah. like a close-up of her face I, I was just thinking about there's something about the way this episode we keep talking about how uncomfortable this episode is we spent a long time thinking about the pack at the beginning and like that movement of the audience of don's friends moving into what like what is the stakes of this episode really it's like an hour of us watching people suffer and, like, yep, and there, yep. there's a there's a way that we are also that classroom of kids being like ooh look at how great her performance is as she cries right like there's something about us judging her creepiness that associates us with that popular kid making her life like i think to me that character has not been particularly cruel to Dawn. They just commented about her weird freak out. Like, it's interesting to see it being put through the high school lens here. Um, But it's like, those characters are doing what we're doing. They're talking about, like, her performance of grief in a weird way. Yeah, Um, true. So I wanted to move to the Willow Tara scene. And I think this scene is, like, fucking A++. I just... Everything about this scene, I think, is so beautiful. And in the commentary, Joss says again about the camera that they use different cameras for Tara and for Willow because he wanted, he did the same thing they did with uh, Sarah's performance with a guy with just the camera on his shoulder for Willow. But with Tara, they used a regular steady cam to show that Willow was more frantic and Tara was more calm. Uh, and I wanted to read from, I mean, this is Joss again, but it's a quote from this book, uh, Slayers of Vampires, where Joss says, the network actually called me and said, you know, we have a lot of gay this year. We're kind of gayed out. Dawson's and this other show. And I said, I don't know. I don't watch those shows. We're going to do this thing and it's what we're going to do. And they were totally fine, but they were like, do you have to have the kiss in the body? And I said, okay, I'm packing up my office. I never pulled that out except that one time. I'm like, I'm packing up the office. And they were like, nope, never mind. It's cool. Um, and I don't know. I, I just think that's some really good, like... For me, this is... I love that it's one of the first, like, queer kisses on TV. Um, 
and it's just like like it's besides the point it's just uh one person in love comforting someone else they love um and just seeing them kiss like knowing the context of it makes me tear up even more because I'm like oh I love them and I think Amber Benson and Alison Hannigan act so well together you know the tenderness in Tara's face when she's looking at anyone in this episode is just like oh hug me please like I love you <laughs> um yeah so I don't know That's how you all felt I was I was so disturbed when I read when I was reading the summaries that he got flack from the network for this kiss. It right. actually surprised me. It had, I had to go back. I mean, I remember. I think I was was I working at Nerve or something. I remember us writing about um, what a breakthrough the Cara, the Tara Willow situation was. I I, I don't know whether it was the it wasn't one of the first gay kisses on TV. There had been. I thought, it was, I thought it was one of the first on, like, basic cable, maybe, or something like that. I think it's the first network. I mean, I think Deep Space Nine I, precedes it. No, I mean, I mean, there was a, there was a kiss, there was a kiss on, uh, there was a kiss on L.A. Law, there was a kiss on, um, on, wasn't there a kiss on 30-something? There was a, um, or did they just show them in bed together on 30-something? Mm-hmm. There was that, a kiss on Melrose Place before this, like, but but this is what is so great about this, and I think this was true for what Josh said about it from what I read, is that the network didn't advertise it as this big, like, ha-ha, a kiss. <laughs> it right. just, it's just organically part of an otherwise extremely serious scenario. Um, but the, the, just trying to go back and see this as a historic moment was actually quite disturbing because <laughs> it's it's re- it's ridiculous like it, it's absurd like i i actually i i realized i'd like to read more about what was going on behind the scenes because i also read that the wb didn't recognize the gay subtext to all the witchcraft yeah scenes <laughs> and i was like were they not watching the show like it wasn't it wasn't that subtextual like it was right there um so so that was very strange to me and um but it, but it was interesting to me that they, they place this kiss inside an episode that's not really about their romance it's not a significant yeah. step for their romance it, in a way it reminded me of the thing where um they were originally going to have buffy and riley have sex for the first time during hush um and then they decided that that was actually too much to do but the idea of placing a little uh, like a significant sexual move forward within an episode that right. is otherwise framed in a totally different way right. is interesting i mean in a larger way it's about the way like we all experience our humanities and and willow like one of the things I love about this scene with Willow's, I, I wrote down a dressing crisis, mm-hmm. is that we experience people's death ultimately, even though you send condolences or you say condolences or whatever, like you, you, people's deaths affect how you feel about your own life. And Willow's thing is that she feels immature. Like uh, Joyce's death makes her feel immature. Like she's looking at her clothes and everything has cute bunnies on it and she feels young and she's freaking she out says, about, why can't i be a grown-up yeah. Right. yeah she's freaking out about growing up and getting older because i mean when it's usually a death within your own family you feel your mortality and you might feel yourself move up the familial line in a way um and then but willow is having that sense of gosh i'm such a i'm such a youngin and i think that also that kiss is such a physical it's such a physical thing, right? It's such a physical reminder of comfort. Physical comfort is so huge. And then having it there, it, it, no, no, no. It's, it's, uh, it's like, obviously, yeah, you don't have to have their first on-screen kiss during this episode, but I'm very, also very glad that it's here because if there, if there, if a kiss were absent, modern family style, I'd be like, what? I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's weird. I actually I remember there. The, this is an interesting scene. I found it oddly agitating to watch. I do think she gives a wonderful performance. Um, Allison yeah. um, Hannigan gives a great performance in this, and there's so yeah. much going on because it makes me realize what a complicated character Willow is because she's incredibly like competitive with everybody about who <laughs> takes her of Buffy, but she's neurotic and self-hating about whether she's wearing the wrong thing. She thinks that if she wears purple, she's going to be lording it over Buffy. So she clearly is feeling some slightly subliminal feeling of like, well, her mom's dead, but mine's not yeah. like, so like, am I going to be showing off? But is this disrespectful? <laughs> like, it's, it's just like, like the, the level at which she's feeling a mixture of bringing loving feelings enormous solipsism self-consciousness and a lot of hostility because she's mm-hmm. really nasty to Anya like yeah. for understandable but also slightly crazy reasons and but also her hostility towards Anya is like hostility towards herself that she can't express yeah. like she's it's also hostility towards Anya <laughs> like, I mean, I mean yeah. hostility towards Anya is hostility towards Anya but it's also like why can't you grieve the right way right I'm going through so much pain to try to grieve the right way and your pain doesn't match my level of like pain to read the correct way. Yeah, that's true. She's a very, I mean, she's obviously, she's competitive with Anya for other reasons as well. And in this case, and I think uh, it's not just true in the show. I, I mean, in situations I've had where friends have died, there is this weird jockeying for position yeah. that people have yeah. as the circle of support for grieving people that is unavoidable even for incredibly well-intentioned people and yeah. even though that's not the central subject of the episode this scene it really comes through um i think very powerfully mm. i remember hating the moment when she's i know this sounds really mean of me but when she says strong like an amazon because i remember feeling that it had this kind of like corny quality to it like they have a very cutesy dynamic those two women and they it's it's a part of what people loved about that couple but it sometimes made me cringe and i was i was looking online and i realized that it's actually a quote from a frank song yeah and yes. i didn't realize that i mean i'd heard frank's music before but i was like oh i actually kind of like that that's more of like then she's actually quoting something because i thought it was just them sort of being kind of female powery. Emily, right. I did not know that until today when I watched it with the commentary. <laughs> yeah. I had seen the commentary, but I haven't seen the commentary in years. Once again, my DVDs are on the East Coast. <laughs> so I, it's funny, I wrote down the Amazon and I thought that it was, without knowing that it was a quote, I thought that it was supposed to be like an old school lesbian reference because they're right. <laughs> well, it is. I yeah. thought it was like, okay, Joss is writing lesbians like they all talk about Amazons all day. <laughs> That's exactly what always bothered me about it because I didn't realize it was a quote. And I was just like, are they just going to start making Sappho quotes? Like, just, <laughs> like is it just going to be this thing where it's just going to be like a series of kind of uh, like greatest hits lesbian references? But I... I it, but, it, it's a yeah. funny thing because it is like personal to them, but it was interesting that it was a quote from a and that's, from a Jewish lesbian folk singer. And so. that's funny because, and I mean, Anthony, I know you're probably about to say the same thing. In the commentary, Joss specifically says, I didn't have them say that because they're lesbians. I had them say it because it's a Frank <laughs> quote. Like he specifically talks about that. And, and, with all due respect to Joss, and I'm not disagreeing with like, he's not trying to override his intent, but that is who Frank is. Like Frank is, you know, is like, I, I liked Frank's music because she's that's her brand is Jewish lesbian folk singer and all her right. songs were about that so it just it's, it's <laughs> oh my god wait strange to detach it wait guys I I thought when he said it was a Frank song I was like what is it a Frank Sinatra song I had no idea who Frank was I thought it was Frank Sinatra <laughs> I thought that's who we were referencing <laughs> oh, no no P H R A N C ah <laughs> <laughs> after this I will go listen to her. 
it's the stage name of Susan Gottlieb. Oh. Um, yes, yeah, she was she was a she was a, sort of a punk punk folk singer, part of the queer core movement. Right. So that is that is how I took it when I read that it was a thing. It would be great though if Frank Sinatra had a song <laughs> that, that had that had this unknown lyric, "Be strong like an Amazon." I think it would add a real layer to his work. <laughs> I think that this uh, the the regarding the kiss, I sort of. I'm doing work with some licenses right now and uh, it's 2018 and the pressure to exclude queer content is still out there um, as I am learning. And it's, I think what I admire about this scene is the way you have to get queer content into things is to make people feel like an absolute piece of shit for asking you to take it out. And I, <laughs> I think that that's what excellent. this scene teaches excellently, that you have to build like a Trojan horse of unimpeachable, like make the person feel like absolute garbage for sending the note. And I think that's what this scene does really well. Um, it also, by not making a big deal about it, by sort of downbeating it, doesn't make it seem like it's like their first kiss right like yes, that would yeah. be a very strange thing if you built an event around it, it's like well what would be the it's not an event in their lives so it just becomes the event of the spectacle of it I know we were just talking about the weird diorama and uncomfortableness of this episode and like one of the things I like about it is um, as much as it is sort of a historic kiss you can miss it and like if your sensibility yeah. is not the specific weird 90s thing we all are you will not notice it. Like a, a teenager watching it now may not even. I am not a weird '90s thing. I'm a lot older than you guys. <laughs> oh. I just would like to exclude myself from this category. <laughs> no, no. I, I actually want to compare it. Well, there are two things. One of them is that I, I realized that when I was watching it, in my, I, I like Willow and Tara as a couple, but I did always have this slight bridling at the cutesiness of them mm -hmm. and the way they spoke to each other and stuff. But it, it is interesting because it is a very clean, loving like non-erotic kiss of comfort like that's what it is and that's why in placed in this context it is exceedingly uncontroversial in that way and you know should be in its way and is good in its way but i'd also like to compare it to the first time i remember seeing a gay uh, kiss on tv which is the melrose place kiss where matt first kisses his boyfriend and it was filmed i always say this as though the cameras were birds going crazy outside their heads <laughs> spinning around them like like lighting on their lips and then staring away and look it was the craziest thing i remember watching it with friends and there was like did they have to film it <laughs> as though right. it was literally there was a, an actual storm of panic going on around their faces this scene is filmed very calmly like, it's just a thing happening. Emily, the point about, like, the erotic interrupting here, I think that is actually the opening beat of the next episode, if I'm not mistaken, is that um, Xander and Anya talk about how their sex was more intense because of Joyce. Well, that makes total sense for Xander and Anya. I love that they said <laughs> that. And I wish that that particular dynamic had actually been placed over on, on Willow and Tara. <laughs> because of their historic quality and because they were both you know sweet wishes witches and all that kind of stuff the one thing that they lacked was some of that sort of like wavering eroticism all of which were placed into the bodies of xander and anya and faith and like other characters got mm -hmm. to embody that kind of thing but it's interesting because it's a pretty kinky show about the character sexuality with the exception of willow and tara because maybe because in that historical period, just them being queer made them kinky enough for people's eyes. But they, right, you know, right. it's a vampire show. Like, it has a lot of dominant submission issues yeah, yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. Um, They're an extreme um, egalitarian couple. So, wait, so, so before no. we move on, which I, I know we need to, um, 
I thought I remembered in that Merrill's place just they don't actually show their lips touching. Like, I remember watching that as a closeted baby gay being like, oh. are they going to kiss? And then, like, not seeing their lips did they touch. Not, did, they, did they not show them kissing? Oh, my God. That's also Hitchcock, right? Like, you never see the blade go into her body. It's like... <laughs> that's, that's a perfect comparison for how Matt was treated on that show. But... but you know, that, that's so funny. Um, I, I think we must have all been, you know, I, I have to say this is a separate story, but I was watching, I was living in Atlanta at the time and I was watching it with Queer Nation Atlanta. So oh, I think everybody oh, was oh. so excited to see a gay kiss on TV that if they didn't kiss, I think people added the kiss in. <laughs> I, see, remember, I, like, I may have a false memory of it as, as us having seen because everyone cheered. Like people were so excited. It's very possible I'm misremembering it. My memory is terrible. Um, but so, I know I just made that weird Hitchcock thing, but that's like that's literally the false memory. Everyone has memories of Janet Lee being punctured by a knife, and there is no sequence. Yeah. There is no. Oh yeah, there. that's right. That's exactly right. It's <laughs> exactly like that. <laughs> so I wanted to move on to before we move on to the next scene. Um, talk about Anya's speech because Jesus Christ, I think this moment is maybe, and I say this, and I absolutely mean it, maybe the best moment of the entire series. I think is Anya's monologue and i wanted to read there's a quote from emma caulfield in the book and it's really good and she says i had a real anya moment and i'm not proud of it i was asked by a fan what were you thinking during your monologue because i cry every time and i'm like honestly i was really hungry and i had to go to the bathroom i was very <laughs> lucky to have that monologue and be part of that episode because it's really beautifully done episode from top to finish Sarah's performance, the writing, and the directing are all really flawless and should have won an award. And, like, she's right. Um, but I really like the idea of her just being like, oh, I had to pee. No big deal. Like, But it's perfect. Leaky yeah. bodies. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of leaky bodies, the first line kind of Anya walks in on is, Xander cried at the apartment and it's weird. Yeah. yeah. And then Willow responds with, it's a thing we do. And she's, like, saying, yeah, it's a thing our bodies leak when we're sad. And it's also every detail she mentions, like as much as she's talking about how Joyce was alive and now she's dead, everything she says is like, comb your hair, drink fruit punch. Like it's all like physicalized action. Like it's yeah, all about, eggs. yeah. Right. I don't know. I, I don't really have much else to say about the scene other than I think it's fucking perfect. Um, and Emma Caulfield is like giving such a good performance. And like, I think that it's earned because we know Anya, right? Like, out of context, it would be like, oh, this is a good scene, but I think it's earned and makes it a million times better because we know Anya, we know who she is, we've watched her develop from, like, a one-off demon of the week to, like, this character we love who doesn't understand human things. Uh, and I just, I don't know, I think it's, and I don't use this word a lot, but I think it's really beautiful. I love I love this monologue. I think she does it beautifully. It expresses something really profound. I don't know if I would say it's the best moment on the whole on the whole series, but I I do think I, I, I was saying before how I think that Anya is is the the MVP of this episode. And what's so powerful to me is that she gets so many laugh lines, and then she gets this moment where she gets to be the innocent but also to show all of these weird layers to her character it's also kind of a strange thing because of course Anya has experienced more death than anybody on yeah. the show yeah right. I mean Anya is the the only supernatural creature in the room I mean and she's caused a lot of the death which I think yeah. is the interesting layer is that like she's the only one of the group I mean Buffy has killed obviously a lot of bad people but like Anya's the only one who can say, I just killed a lot of mortals for sport as part of my job, yeah. you know? 
Yeah, she's tortured people and she's talked frequently with relish about ripping people apart. I mean, even the thing about Santa disemboweling children mm-hmm. is this kind of sort of dismissive. I mean, it's it's the part of the reason that Willow gets so high horsey about her all the time yeah. is that she talks about bodies in this dismissive way. But then there's this incredible tenderness and innocence also to her saying, you know, are we going to get to see the body? Yeah. Are they going to cut the body open and everything? I, I, I think the contrast between her... I don't know whether you call it wisdom <laughs> if you've tortured a lot of people, but like there's the, the, the weird weaving together of this um, sort of dark worldliness of her and her absolute lack of knowledge of this. And then her access to these emotions makes it so powerful. Right. And, and yet at the same time, what she's saying is it completely something anybody can relate to. <laughs> well, yeah, it is- it's, it's always interesting too, to see, so to, to think about that dynamic of Willow, uh, Anya, because Willow is or was introduced to us kind of as the smart one. And I always think of curiosity as a kind of hallmark of smart of smartness. But when you break down, like she's actually saying that Anya's curiosity is out of place, like Anya wants to learn, but she's actually saying that this is now not the time to learn. It's not that is not the correct way to grieve. And it makes me think about willow's evolution as um the brain of the group and how that ha- becomes less and less a part of her character as she goes into being a witch and and uh her sexuality and stuff like that how they they don't emphasize and that's actually something spike points out to at the beginning at, in season four he says like you know you're not as into the computer thing as much anymore you're into the new stuff yeah and how he, she's actually kind of like knocking anya for her curiosity about the world in a way that anti willow and Auntie Willow, as we knew her for three and a half, four years, kind of. Yeah, she can be really snarky about other people. And, and actually, a lot of people knock Anya in this episode because later Xander, who often reflexively says undermining things for both understandable and pretty rude reasons. Like later he says, Anya, quite the wordsmith or something like that. Uh, I, it's really – it's it is really um, – I think it's part of the reason that I felt oddly – uh, I had a very mixed feelings about Willow and Xander in this episode. I mean, they both give good performances, and I think their roles are very interesting. But it it, it was interesting to see. I, I think some of the parts that I thought were most interesting were actually the tensions among them, where they mm-hmm. get into arguments and they express hostility to each other and they undermine each other. Because those parts felt both very realistic and very uncomfortable. Yeah, right. Well, and then it's interesting to think about, like, I mean, we've been talking so much. We The episode is about the physicality of the body, but they're – all of this stuff about so- socialness creeps in about like how do we perform grieving socially in front of people and what is the correct and not correct way to grieve in front of other people. Because when Willow and Tara are together, actually the social component is not there. It's all about how do we grieve privately in front of the person we love. And then once the other two, when Xander and Anya enter the room, it becomes about what is the correct way to grieve? What is the correct way to perform grief in front of other people? Yeah. And I've always felt like, there was so not only is that a great monologue the way it's written, but I think in the context of the show, because it comes at this moment where Willow and Anya, I mean, Willow already pretends that she's gonna get into a fist fight with Xander to comfort him, but she seems yeah. like she wants to fight Anya in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> a joke because she is at the point of wanting to fight. I think that we actually reach a point where we where the characters learn about Anya because Anya has to it's almost like Anya's last stand for herself. 
like, I'm not going to let you keep making fun of me and how I grieve because I am newly human the way that Dawn is newly human and you all coddle her. You know, I'm newly human and you don't give a fuck about that. Yeah. So yeah. I, I always feel like after, you know, Triangle is one kind of um, benchmark for how they treat Anya. And then this is another kind of benchmark where she really makes a makes a um, an argument for her humanity. Yes, yeah. definitely. She yeah. really makes the case for her way of seeing the world and for them respecting it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that um, the end of this, I think you're right. This pays off the triangle thing. Actually, in a way, the triangle never really does. Like, I don't really buy. I love that episode, but I don't really buy it as a resolution for their tensions. Whereas Willow actually hearing Anya here um, to me is the payoff for this relationship. And I can sort of understand their eventual detente out of this moment. And I think what, to the episode's credit, the reason this speech is the one everyone remembers is because it seems like, it's really just a question, right? Like, why does this happen? And no one provides an answer, right? Like Willow, as much to her credit as she is a know-it-all, does not sort of posit any kind of way to respond, right? Like the reason they're all freaking out is because there is no correct way to answer this question. Um, And I think that her just saying like, well, no one has, the episode ends with the question. And I think that Willow's answer here is the same one. Like, we don't know. Um, Well, and and I think she's asking about death, but I think she's also calling Willow's bluff because Willow keeps saying with her in other words, she's saying you're not grieving the correct way. And then Anya's, response in the monologue even though it's about the body is also well what is the correct way to grieve tell me the right way yeah willow says oh, i love that i love when she says should i take my clothes on and off like yeah, yeah. and says totally. it genuinely right it's yeah. not it's that you can read that line that she could have easily have delivered that line as like a sarcastic rebuke uh, it makes so much sense as anything else yeah in the commentary, Joss says that they purposely didn't show Xander punching the wall because he wanted it all to be the episode about reacting. And I actually really like the way that's framed on Willow. And we just get Willow, like, jumping because there's a loud noise. And then, like, we see Anya looking and Xander has punched the wall. Um, and it gives them, and Joss says he did that to give them, to, like, bring them back. So the scene's ending with them kind of, like, being the Scoobies again because there's, like, a problem. And the problem is his hand's on the wall. They need to get it out. Um, and they, like, have something to focus on. And also in the commentary, Joss says how Allison Hannigan had to be rushed to the hospital after this scene because she's allergic to plaster and her eyes right. swelled up from the, like, punching through the wall. Right. I like it because it's sort of a micro version of the episode, right? Like, in the same way we don't see the hole being punched, we never see Joyce's death scene, right? Yeah. And, like, everybody wants to... Buffy's whole arc in the episode is, like, did she suffer that much when it happened? And she keeps asking, she keeps overhearing that there's that horrible pause where the uh, EMT is like, she probably felt very little pain. And then when the doctor comes in later, she's like, did she really feel pain? And there's the, the redub of the line where he says, I have to lie to make you feel better. Um, And having not seeing Xander introduce that whole, like Joyce's absence is like, again, we're on the negative space thing, right? Like Joyce is the whole, and we don't see the whole introduced. We just see the reactions to it. Yeah, yeah. I, I do love in the scene the, the, the prescient mention of the Avengers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so then we get the hospital. We get to the hospital. Um, and I think, I don't know how all of you feel. I For me, it feels like we've done all the heavy lifting of the episode at this point. It's like they've all converged at the hospital. I mean, it's still sad, but it feels like almost like watching it when I watched it without the commentary, when I was like crying through every scene, it was almost like, okay, now I'm done crying. Now let me watch them converge and be friends. It's like the, 
the most the saddest part is her finding Joyce and then everyone's reacting to Joyce and we're kind of like over that hump almost even though we're not there yet with Dawn uh and so I wanted to point out in the commentary again Joss says that he purposely made Dawn and Buffy like unable to connect in this scene because he said that he said quote-unquote in my experience of death in my experience of death is, apart from a lot of hugging at funerals, it, seldom's, it seldomly brings people together. It actually tears them apart, and I had always learned from TV that death made everybody strong and better and learned about themselves. And my experience was that an important piece had been taken out of the puzzle, and that piece would never be replaced, and there's never a glorious payoff. And I felt like that's so fucking true, um, and I never thought of it in that context, but that, I don't know, that for me that holds true, right? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that is exactly, I mean, that's such a great quote from him. And I do think that's exactly why you can go at all of the little things in the episode that are well done or that are interesting choices, like the no sound, but that element of it, which is that it just very straightforwardly shows that people are kind of alienated and split apart and hurt in a way that is not easily just sewed up right at the end is, is, is very powerful part of this episode that I also relate to um, mm. in, in terms of it also being sort of a disappointing part of death. Like you think, <laughs> you think that it, you know, like it would, it puts everything in perspective, but people have an emotion, emotional difficulty finding their way through. I do think the scene in the hospital where the, um, the, uh, the doctor who looks over Joyce's body goes through the hallway is so eerie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when I first saw it, because throughout the episode, and it's sort of hard to re-engage with this, I thought something supernatural was going to happen. That's another moment that it seems like it's mm. actually about vampires or something. Right. Um, but it's not. It's just a scene of him walking through the hallway. Um, it's very it, odd. I like it because of the, the, how proximate it makes death, right? Like the yes. doctor comes out and we, we see sort of this weird umbilical cord feeding from Joyce's body to them. And as much as there is this sort of physical space between them, um, to, to think about the fact that your your doctor just saw your mother's body is something mm-hmm. that would not have occurred to me, except that I just watched, my eye watches that happen in a single shot. The vampire thing, can we talk about the vampire thing? Does everybody like the vampire thing as a choice? I love it. Argue with me. I don't <laughs> no, <know>. I... <laughs> I mean, I actually really think that without it, the episode would not work. I, I mean, I think it makes the episode work. I, I, I think it's visually very powerful, and I think it is a really important thing in this show that we see an undead person. Hmm. Emily, I'm going to edit your Twitter, Avi, to be on that meme of the guy where it's like, blah, 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 change my mind, and he's like sitting at the table. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, exactly. So, did, wait, did, did some of you guys not like it or have a problem with it? I also love it. I think that it's important. Um, it would have felt like a cheat if the episode was like here, if Buffy the Vampire Slayer had an episode where it's like, and nothing supernatural happened, right? Um, but also, I think that as much as we were talking about how uh, this episode refuses to be theological, it refuses to think about the stakes of death, having that vampire there and having him be so mottled and gross, he really is just like, he really is just the metaphor of death, right? Like, he really is just this eruption of something horrible into her life, something confront, like the nakedness. He confronts her with his body, right? Yeah. Um, and the Buffy being able to kill him gets us to a place where Dawn can start to process too, right? Like she's confronted with his physical body. She's confronted with Joyce's physical body and something beyond the shock 
of that can start to happen. Matthew, what did you think about that scene? Um, I love that scene. And I think one of the things that I love about, well, there's two things that I want to talk about that scene. First, I want to say that I think it's incredibly important that Buffy not only has to slay this vampire, but slays him in probably the most violent way that she's ever slain a vampire on the show. She takes a hacksaw and just hacks his head off after her mother has been dealing with head trauma. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, oh, I physically have to, like, muster... I mean, she's in a zombified state, and yet her in that zombified state has to muster... Because even in the beginning, you can see that she's having a little bit more trouble fighting this vampire than usual. She's kind of, like, not fully there, obviously. And he's kind of overpowering her, and then she has to physically overcome that body and cut his head off. And Mm -hmm. it's super violent, and it's, like, almost traumatizing to watch her do that. The other part of it is that I am such a... Because I think... Anya is the MVP of this thing, but the I don't know what the second below MVP is, so I'll just say the Dauphine. <laughs> <laughs> the Dauphine of the episode is Dawn, because when Dawn chooses to go look for the body, that is the most interesting choice in the episode to me. Like, when you write, like, what can a character do? And, like, Dawn feels like, I don't know, Dawn always feels like people are hiding things from her. She's very curious. She wants to know more about the world, too, the way that Anya does, and... If Anya does the curiosity thing, Dawn does it just as well, because going through that authorized personnel door that has no locks on it is such a choice for her to make. And to, like, I want to physically confront my body. I don't care what the doctor says. I don't care what Buffy says. I will not believe it until I see it from my own two eyes. And then that's just, to me, probably the most interesting thing Dawn has ever done. Like, it's just that great character choice. But to me, it it reads as entirely in character. Like... I'm fascinated by Dawn's existential problem, which is that she is very aware that she in some ways does not exist. <laughs> and it, to me, trying to find Joyce's body is a symptom of the same phenomenon where she finds that she's not real and has to see her own blood. Right. Or even in season six, where one of the ways she deals with trauma is to steal other people's things. She literally has to put her hands on things to make them real. And that to me is such an interesting, fascinating symptom of the way, simple, simply the way she exists, right? Like right. she needs to no, touch. I don't think this is out of character for Dawn. I think that it's in character. I don't know if that's what, you, cause I, I think that- Oh, no, 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 I just, yeah, I just wanted to expand. It's what's supposed, it's what she's supposed to do. Like it's, there's no <laughs> thing that she could have done to me that would have been correct. Like she has to see the body she has to touch it. She has to be there. And then I also think there's an interesting layer because at this point, she knows that this body did not physically give birth to her body, even though Joyce could tell you how many hours she was in the um, hospital giving birth to Dawn. Like, her, that body did not give birth to her, but she still feels so much connection to it, right? And I think that that's one of the most interesting layers, too, of, uh, of talking about mothering as a social experience as opposed to a physical one. I have to say, I also just love the way that the scene is filmed and the simplicity of Buffy coming in and fi- I mean, par- partially it is as though she's coming in finding her teenage sister being sexually assaulted because it's mm-hmm. a naked man right. who's grappling with her. And then she grabs him and wrestles with him. And then as she's committing this really violent way of killing him, it's it's, it's so fascinatingly set up where Dawn isn't even looking at, you know, because she accidentally pulls the drape off 
off right. of her mother. Right. And so it's the contrast between these two kinds of dead bodies, one of them incredibly active and violent and being destroyed, and the other one completely still. And the fact that at the end there's that scene where they're both on the ground and they're filmed with – I think it's Joyce's faces in the yeah. forefront. And then the two girls are kind of doing that you know, Christina um, <laughs> pose on the ground um, in front of one another. And then they have that spare little dialogue. I mean, I actually, I think, I think the way that this scene with its highly theatrical stylized quality contrasts with the opening scene um, with Buffy all alone sort yeah. of going through stages is really powerful and is kind of what makes the episode work. Everything in between is very powerful in terms of, talking about the way that people deal with death but it's these two like bookends yeah visceral bookends to mm -hmm. to the episode and then that little dialogue between them about um where even though they've just been through what's theoretically a violent experience it's all about buffy telling dawn it's the same debate that she was having in a weird way on the phone with the uh 911 person where she was saying um the body and she was like no it's my mom yeah yeah and it's that same dynamic of trying to convince yourself that body that looks like my mother is not my mother. Um, yeah, I mean, so in my notes, I put like in all caps, I really wish Dawn hadn't snuck in there, but like I get it. Um, I do think I agree with what all of you said. Like it, it fits for Dawn. It makes sense that she would go in there. You you get why. Why do you wish she had not gone in there? Only because like that scene is just so upsetting for the two of them. And I can't imagine mm -hmm. that that would help them in healing or grieving, having well, to, like, see their dead mother while wrestling a naked dead vampire and cutting his head I, off. I think that one of the things, one of the things this scene is about is sort of the culmination of a thread that's through the episode, which is the indignities we heap on dead bodies. Like, we keep seeing Joyce's corpse and, like, Buffy breaks a rib, um, her blouse is sort of cut off her, we see the wound right. introduced to the side of her head for the autopsy. I come from a culture where you, you have open casket funerals, um, and I hate them. I, I, I find them very traumatic because no matter what you do for the rest of your life, when you think about that lost person, you remember their, their corpse. You remember seeing a version of them that is wrong, that does not register correctly, that indignities have happened to, that makeup is, is not applied the way they would have applied it, that is in, in a state of visible decay, no matter how good the... Um, the corpse is treated and it's like part of me is like is that good is that a good trauma to introduce because i always will remember them as dead and they didn't just exit stage left out of my life when i wasn't looking or is that is that always like a last indignity that death gives us i don't have an answer but that to me whenever i see the scene i think of that moment of like finality but also a, its own terrible trauma well real quick before we end um and before i give my little why I I love this episode and why I love Buffy. I wanted to say that I think there's a direct line between Tara Tara telling Buffy that she did lose her mother when she was a teenager to their friendship that they form in season six. The whole scene is supposed to be two people that aren't like are only friends because of another person having to interact, right? But then it works. And Tara is just so sweet and tender and, you know, tells Buffy lovingly, you know, I lost my mother and I'm not comparing. I'm just saying I understand and that it's always different. Um, I love that speech and I, I love the idea of that, like that's where their friendship actually starts because of course they care about each other 
but they don't really ever get scenes together. This is one of their first scenes together and alone. So I feel like there's a direct line between those two. I wanted to say that like this end, Buffy having to wrestle that awful, gross, naked vampire two feet away from her dead mother is kind of like why Buffy's my hero, right? Because I feel like this season and season two are where she's just dealing with everything. Um, and she's handling it. She's not happy about it, but she does what she has to do. Um, you know, she's literally, like you guys said, she's in the most gruesome way that she's killed a vampire on screen. She's sawing this fucker's head off yeah, to, like, save her sister in front of her dead mother and just earlier that day had to deal with her mother being dead. Um, and kind of like, I don't know, that's, for me, Buffy always, you know, Buffy deals with it. And, you know, in Way to the World, we learned that she had a moment where she thought it would all be over if glory got dawn willow kind of is like hey that's okay that you had that moment people have those moments just keep going and she does can i raise one thing by the way about about tara's mother having died it it occurred to me watching this episode how bizarre it is that i understand why buffy wouldn't know that tara's mother died but doesn't willow know that tara's mother died like it feels like in their whole scene it never comes up when willow and tara are talking I think that I think we know we know she's died because of family. The episode where right. Tara's Tara's family shows up, and I think as an audience, we are never invited to think about the conditions under which Tara's mother has died. And I think that just sort of like having her bring it up because she is sort of being treated. She is literally stable in frame, right? She's in some ways just reacting to I, I'm them. Just, I'm I'm just basically saying when when two girlfriends are having a conversation about how she acted at a funeral, what do you properly oh. funeral? There's no thing of like, what, how was it at your mother's funeral? Like, like Tara never, yeah. the, Willow never turns to Tara and asks her about her own experience with, with death or anything. Like that. Not that she should. I just, yeah, I sort of noticed it in this yeah. context because she's the one person there who actually has had a parent die. And it seems like Willow would know that. I was very happy with the Tara Buffy scene. And I also thought it was very like, Interesting that in order for Tara and Buffy to even connect, everyone else had to leave because Tara never can never speak up over the rest of them, you know? And she apologizes for saying it. Yeah. But one thing I wanted to go back to that we were talking about, too, is that I think that this episode and what I was saying from the first scene is that it's about all the roles that Buffy plays. And I think that they all culminate in the final scene because she's playing sister to Dawn and she's also protecting Dawn and then she's her she's in the room with her mother's body so she's playing daughter and then she's forced to slay at a moment where she doesn't think that she should have to and so she also is playing you know slayer right so she's having three simultaneous social experiences and so far throughout the episode they've kind of been separated and I also think that that's why it works at the end that like at the end she she can't you can't separate them out they all have to exist together this can't be the one day that she thought that she wouldn't have to be on the job it really is the very um grim and complicated thing about buffy's whole existence on the show is that she never gets to just break down and not do anything like she's constantly having to save people and at the end of the season she commits an act that simultaneously a Christ-life sacrifice and sort of a suicidal act. I mean, I really feel like it's presented both as an act of suicidal depression and as an act of self-sacrifice. And it's just the opportunity to do something and have it end so that she doesn't have to be constantly everybody's savior and active. And this episode really is this, she gets to break down like a grieving person throughout the entire episode I mean, she has to tell Dawn and she has to go through to the hospital, but she can kind of be in an undead state. And then, yeah, she is forced to do her job. 
right? That's exactly what she says to Joyce at the end of season two when she's like, it never ends. And it really doesn't for her. And I think you're right that her sacrifice serves as a sacrifice, but also kind of suicide because that's the only way for it to end for her, right? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, who was saying before, oh, it was Emily who was saying before that you have Dawn being like, oh, I'm so dark and these terrible things happen. Yeah. yeah. And then you have Joyce's death really reframing how terrible things could be. And this episode does kind of reframe that conversation with her mother because when she's saying it never ends, she's talking about how hard it is to see Angel, um, you know, turn and all these terrible things that have happened to her so far. But then you have like Buffy season five terrible and she really learns what it means to have to be on your job at your worst moment, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Your worst moment isn't like, oh, my boyfriend of 10 days went evil. <laughs> yeah. It's like my mom decided. And I saw. But this is also the season where she decides, like, I'm just thinking about this, the conversation she has with Giles at the end of the season where Giles, Giles finishes doing the math and realizes the way to stop Gloria is to kill Dawn. And um, she says, I will not let you do that. Like, I will protect her. Like, Dawn becomes the one thing in her life that is um, sanctified, that is something she will not give up. Um, so there, she just sort of is negotiating some kind of part of her that she will not let die, even as she externalizes it, right? Are we are we there? Are we at the end? I think we're at the end, right? Do you guys have yeah. anything more to say about the episode? No, I but it was I, I actually both appreciated and resented being forced to watch it again. <laughs> You're <laughs> welcome, mean, Emily. It's a couple of weeks, and like it, it's just it, I, when I was looking at, it, I was like, I, I immediately, you know, even having, you know, I, I haven't watched it in a long, long time. I I may have watched it after it first aired, but I don't remember it. But it really does stand out from the rest of the series. There are other episodes that are sad. But it is a demanding thing to watch. And right. I like cry, but this is not right. usually the way. It, yeah, it, and it's it, like a relentless it, cry. Yeah. No, um, but it also did make me it, – it, it does make me appreciate specific performances. And, you know, I think Sarah Michelle Gellar is a wonderful performer and she's a great Buffy. But she's often at her best – when she has to sort of cross strange lines like this and when she's forced to push herself to these emotional extremes, she just finds this very, very interesting things. And she gives such a great performance. Anya gives a great performance. It's just, I don't know that, that part of it is the the part that was a pleasure to see, even though I was ultimately (laughs) weeping and feeling nauseous. (laughs) I also feel like this commentary has been like this, like, episode has been semi-traumatic i feel like we've all been like when this happened to me and when this happened it's like oh god i feel like i need like tea right now like <laughs> normally we do favorite outfit but i feel like we're not going to do that for this episode but i favorite, do want to favorite wait, wait wait favorite what we normally say favorite outfit and favorite scene but let's just oh, do I, I, I could say a favorite outfit yeah actually i i didn't even put in my trivial complaint about costumes <laughs> it didn't seem to fit i was really bothered by i was very disappointed that willow didn't get to wear her blue sweater because she was forced to sit next to buffy and Normally, I'm not attentive to this kind of thing, but Buffy wears a fire engine red sweater throughout the episode, yeah. and Willow is sitting next to her wearing a pink sweater coated in a fuzzy, car- like um, uh, maroon cardigan. Yeah, and it is searingly terrible. <laughs> it's like the most trivial possible thing I can say about the body, but I was like, "Oh my god, you should have listened when, when Tara was giving you information about what you should wear. You should not have grabbed that. That looks terrible. You should have thought about what Buffy was wearing and how it would look when you sat next to her." So that's that's my one complaint about. Oh. I liked her long Hasidic jean skirt. I thought that was a good look. Oh, I like jean skirt. Yeah. Um. 
Jean Skirt felt very old school Willow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so we'll do favorite scenes. Um, Anthony, what was oh, your favorite? What? No, I, I have a favorite outfit too, but it's horrible. It's another indignity. I like Joyce's final outfit a lot, actually. <laughs> oh, God, is <Anthony. laughs> I know, but listen. Okay, like, first of all, I like that it occasion. I mean, like is obviously in quotes, but I like that it occasions it the uncomfortable. It's got to die. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, listen, here's why. If I came home after a date, I would immediately be in, like, a scrubby, like, Transformers t-shirt and my pajama pants, which is what I'm wearing right now. And that would be what people found me dead on the couch in. So I'm just glad she got to wear something that wasn't horrible. If she's a ghost, then that's her final outfit. I worry a lot about my ghost outfit. So good for her. Um, yeah, you don't want to end up in something embarrassing. She's not in her pajamas. It's it's not a bad way to go. Although it does occasion the horrible moment where Buffy has to hike down her skirt. But that's a good, that's an interesting choice in the episode too. Oh, I also really like Anya's cardigan look when she's in the dorm room a lot. Favorite scene, it probably has to be Anya's speech, I think. I think that that is really a mission statement for the show. Even in conversations with dead people, there's that, um, the psychology student that Buffy has her conversation with, who's like newly a vampire. And he says he renounces God and all his works. And he says, do we have any word on that? And Buffy says, the jury's still out. And I think that that's a weird way that the, that maps back onto Anya's speech here, that as much as this show is about the supernatural, it's actually not about anything supernatural. It's about a world that is more weird than ours, but has no no further answers than the one we live in. Matthew? Oh, so, so we are? We are? Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I guess I wasn't... I'm going to go with Tara's, um, Tara's shirt, because I actually feel like they put her in a calming blue because she is like the oceanicness of the episode Aww. that everyone kind of feels calmer around her. And she always gives everyone these kind of knowing looks. So I kind of think of Tara as uh, the ocean of the episode. And I like that she's dressed as such. All right. My, I guess mine would be, I like Anya's outfit. Um, but uh, favorite scene, Emily? Yeah, I, I would. I, I have to pick the Anya okay. speech. I, there are other scenes that I think are very effective, and obviously I love the final scene, but there is something so powerful and simple about the speech, and also it really is one of the best performed things, because if she did that and it felt phony, it would be a terrible moment, yeah. and instead it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's moving and universal and specific to the character. It's yeah. it's really a huge thing, and it doesn't involve any kind of fancy camera work or anything like that. It l- literally is just her doing it while apparently secretly feeling like she needs to be, but <laughs> she did such a great job. No, it's a beautiful scene. Yeah, uh, Matthew? Um, I am – I'm going to – I know this is kind of cheating, but – Well, it's cheating because it's it's not like – like the, the speech is so specific, but really the part – that to me, the, the episode is in three parts. It's Buffy's house and then the dorm room and then the hospital – yeah. And I'm just going to say that I like the the dorm room uh middle third. That's fair. That's fair. Um I I think I would agree with that. Like I like everything going on in the dorm, um but a like very close second would be Buffy panicking around her house. Um okay, so now we're going to grade the episode. Uh Anthony, what grade do you give it? Oh, I mean it's like it is one of the greatest hours of television ever produced. Like <laughs> it's not a pleasurable hour of television to watch, but it is um, it, it, it's one of, it may be actually the greatest episode of television. Um, so whatever that rating is, A++, it defines the scale as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. Uh, Emily? Yeah, 
I, I have lived my whole life refusing to grade things, so I, <laughs> I, I think I'm going to refuse to grade it. I actually, you know, it's interesting. I love this episode. I don't think it's the greatest episode of television ever made. Like, oh, so right. I, I but, but, but no, I mean, I, I just, this is not an insult to the episode. I actually <laughs> like it in, in what I feel are its small flaws or little different things, but I can say A if you want, but like I just I am very hesitant to do that. I know we're wrapping up, but do you have immediate candidates you're thinking of in its place? Like, do you have other television things you're the thinking greatest of? Greatest episode of television yeah. of all time. That would be its own podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I pro- I'm sure I could think of something. Probably something <laughs> from Enlightened, maybe even yes. the pilot um, of my so-called life. Maybe <laughs> like oh, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. there's a slings and arrows. I could probably. I think I would pick a different Buffy episode, but um, okay. So, what would be the Buffy episode you picked, though? That I'm curious. If I picked the best Buffy episode for me, I don't know. God, what is it? I love Doppelgangland, Lovers, Lovers Walk. Like, maybe these are weird choices. Those are weird choices, they're, but I'm into it. They're Jane Espenson choices. Yeah, <laughs> is that right? It's yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'll just pick Hush and take the easy way out. Fair, um, fair. <laughs> what would uh, you pick? Well, for me, I. I'm, like, so basic. Yeah, I... Hush, Once More Feeling, and Restless are, like, my three favorite. And then I guess Graduation Day would be next. But those are all tied as my favorites. You know, I, I was actually sad when I saw the list and I realized that You Were Made to Love Me was the last episode and I missed it because that is absolutely <laughs> one of my favorite episodes. Really? I think, yeah, I love that episode. Huh. Like, I think that is a great episode of television. Yeah. I think it's so interesting. So I'll go, I'll go listen to the podcast that you guys did of that and find <laughs> out what you're – it was probably just hating all over it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't know. It depends on which mood I'm in. Well, I think I should have picked just a real obscurity that everybody hates just to create – division you could have just the pack you've the already pack. yeah as i say <laughs> um well it's funny. i will defend the pack until the end oh, of I, love time. It. I will I just like beer bad <laughs> i mean i have weird days. well that's that's when one of our listeners tweeted at you and was like you should be on slayer fest because our episode of beer bad we literally were like this episode isn't nearly as bad as anyone says it is no it's actually first of all it has a brilliant committed performance by sarah she like, really she does really, really good <laughs> i think there's a lot to that episode i would even you know i defend all of the episodes i would defend bad eggs <laughs> like i mm-hmm. like i like i like that crazy one where eggs. they're attacked by the internet yeah. like there's our, a lot of our podcast episode about bad eggs we were like everyone shits on bad eggs but it's actually really really good yeah <laughs> and and genuinely funny genuinely funny yeah and i love Uh, the episode high school episodes where everyone is there so emily if i had to choose my my best episode of buffy i'm still a selfless person because i think that's when we get pure anya that's interesting so you know i haven't seen it in so long i literally don't remember the episode that well that's the one with all the flashbacks to her life right yeah Yeah, and she's saying they have a once more feeling flashback and she gets to sing her own song god it's so beautiful like is it mrs when she sings no, yeah. which song yeah. yeah yeah i just watched mrs on youtube the other day because i think it was after i watched the body again i just was filled with admiration for anya as a character i was like well this is one of the most original characters ever on television <laughs> she's her politics right. are interesting her emotions are interesting her sexuality is interesting like like the her, like I, and what a timely character for the me too era <laughs> like <laughs> a vengeance demon like all of these kinds of things anyway mrs is also a really great underestimated song so this is just it turns out all i feel about the body is a salute to Anya. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to go rewatch Selfless. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that as one of my favorite episodes. Matthew, did, did you grade it? I don't even know if you graded it yet. No, I will I will just say A and we can move on All to right. 
Well, and then I also grade it an A++, but I literally put in parentheses, but those pluses are made from my tears. Thank you both for joining us, Emily and Anthony. Thank you. I mean, I wish I could say it was a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're We're a little drained, but it was lovely talking to you guys. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. If you liked Slayerfest, you can subscribe to us. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and Google Play and Stitcher. Don't forget to rate us if you like us. Um, and if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at SlayerFestX98. And if you want to follow Matthew on the internet, he is at Matthew Rodriguez, one T, a G, and a Z. If you want to follow Ian, you can follow him at IanXCarlos. And Anthony, where can they find you? Uh, I'm at Twitter at Mia Koopa, M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A. And Emily, where can they find you? At, at Emily Nussbaum, or under my Halloween name, Gremlini Nussboo. <laughs> when, Emily, when that showed up in my feed the other day, I was like, wait, who is this? <laughs> but yeah, thank you all for joining us, and thank you all for listening. We'll see you later. Bye. Thank you so much.